You know, we were singing about the good life. Um, it's in Ephesians 2.10 that it says, God has prepared good works for you to do. He's prepared paths for you to take, living the good life that he prearranged and made ready for you. Now, the world tells you that if you follow God, you're going to miss it. The truth is, if you follow the world, you're going to miss it. Because it's in God that you will find the good life, the life that you were created for. And, of course, God created us. He knows exactly what will fulfill us. And it's not the things that the world tells us are going to fulfill us. Well, today I want to I start this message back in the Old Testament with Moses. He's bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. They come through the, dead, the Red Sea. Excuse me. God opens the sea. The enemies are drowned. Manna comes down from heaven. Moses goes up on the mountain, spends 40 days with God, comes back with a part of what is our Bible today. And as they're going through the wilderness, the Bible says that the soul of the people became discouraged on the way. They, they are going down in what is today the Judean wilderness, the Negev. Um, it's rocky. It's hot. Everything there has a pricker on it, you know, and, and they're, they're discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there was no food, no water. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. The people came to Moses as we sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it will be that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. So Moses makes the serpent puts it up on the pole, and after someone had been bit, they looked, there was deliverance, there was healing, there was salvation. Now, that serpent is a type of Jesus. It's interesting how John 3.16, the best-known verse in the Bible, but right before it, this is what the, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Jesus is saying that serpent is a type of himself. That just like the serpent was lifted up and people needed to look to the serpent, he said, I'm going to be lifted up and people need to look to me. That there's salvation, there's deliverance when we look to Jesus. Now, the serpent was made of bronze, which is judgment. Type of, it rep, bronze always represents judgment in the Bible. So what happened at the cross is sin was judged. Jesus went to the cross not because of what Pilate or the Romans did, not because of what the Jews did. The Bible says in Romans 4, he was delivered up because of our offenses. Who sent Jesus to the cross? You did. I did. Right? And on the cross, Jesus paid for your sin. Sin was judged, paid for at the cross. Well, that was kind of the, the, the end of it. They go on and continue on their journey. 
But the Bible tells us that about 700 years later, there's a king by the name of Hezekiah, and there is revival happening in Israel. And it says, he removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden idols, all forms of idolatry, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel had burned incense to it. So, so God used that bronze serpent, a type of Jesus, and there came deliverance and there came healing to the people. For 700 years, they're burning incense to the serpent and they're worshiping the serpent for 700 years. Now, did God use the serpent? Yeah. But were they supposed to get attached to the serpent? Were they supposed to get attacked, attached to the way that God blessed them? No. But you realize we, we can do something very similar to that. We can get attached to what God uses. Right? Uh, Jeannie and I right now, we're, we're reading a, a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. So it's, it's uh, World War I. Lawrence goes to... Egypt to start with. He's a, he's a lieutenant in the British Army, and they give him an assignment that literally no one thinks he can do. They send him to what's the Arabian Peninsula today, and it's full of, of nomadic tribes, but these tribes have got blood feuds, and they hate each other, and they war against each other. Right? And they send him, and they said, we want you to unite these tribes into a fighting force and stand against the Turkish Empire. Now, the Turkish Empire had been oppressing all of these, these, these tribes, but nobody really thought that Lawrence was going to be able to do it. But he went in, and he unites the tribes and uh, literally just has a tremendous, tremendous uh, fighting force in World War I. Now, when the war is over, Lawrence had fallen in love with the people, and he brought a bunch of the sheiks to Europe. They, they went to Parliament. They had a, a, a tea with the Queen, right? And uh, he, he's trying to get them to understand modernity and, and all the modern conveniences that there are. But when it came time to leave, he said, what would you like to leave? And, and, and unanimously, every one of them wanted the faucet. Right? Now, can you imagine living in a desert all of your life? And the most precious commodity is water. And, and they are in a hotel. And in this hotel, it wasn't like the rest of the hotels where you had to take a pitcher of water and pour it in a basin. Remember, this is still 1918. In this hotel, you just go and you turn a knob on a faucet and the water comes out. And what every one of those sheiks wanted was they wanted the faucet. And they wanted to take the faucet back. Right? And some accounts say that they actually ripped the faucets out of their hotel rooms and were taking the faucets back. Right? So, but what, what Lawrence had to do was explain to them what they want is not the faucet. Because that faucet is connected to a pipe that goes down into the basement that's connected to a bigger pipe that goes to a reservoir. Right? And what you really want is you want the reservoir, you don't want a faucet. But very often what we do is we get married to a faucet. We get married to something that God did. 
Right? We can get married to a type of music. We can get married to a song. We can get married to a person that God uses. In fact, Paul had to deal with that with the Corinthians. He said, look, some of you, you think that it's Paul. Some of you think it's Apollos. He said, look, he said, I planted Apollos water, but it's God who gave the increase. And you need to get hooked up to God, not to the faucet of Paul or the faucet of Apollos. Right? See, what we can do is we can get blessed someplace and get so enamored by what we get blessed with that we forget where that blessing comes from. Amen. Right? And we, we, can, we can literally think that the only way that God's going to move is the way that God moved in the past, but it is not true. In fact, Jesus was dealing with, with the Pharisees about this, and he's talking to them about a lot of the customs and the things that they're doing. And he says, look, it's just your tradition. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, he says, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down in many such things you do. Now notice he said, you make God's word of no effect. God's word does not work for you. He said, because of your tradition. Because you're following a tradition, you're following something that God used at one time, right? You're following an idea that somebody had, and you're missing out on what God has for you. You know, the Bible tells us in Mark, the last chapter, in fact, it's the last verse. It says that they went out and preached the word everywhere, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. So that, this is what it means. It means that God does the word. God does not do what you expect him to do. God does the Bible. God does not do what you think he ought to do. He does the Bible. God doesn't do what tradition says he should do. He does the Bible. He confirms what? The word. See, he's, the Bible says that he's watching over his word to perform it. Right? But if you and I are following a tradition instead of a word from the, the word of God, we're going to make the word of God of no effect. Right? We can have a tradition. As a church, we could say, well, you know, somebody's sick. We should have a bulletin board in the back. We'll put their name on the bulletin board. Right? That's a tradition. But the Bible says lay hands on the sick, doesn't it? It says anoint the sick in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. We can follow a tradition or we can follow the word. Uh, water baptism I think, is such a powerful spiritual reality that God shows up, right? But yet we can just say, well, that's not, that's not anything important. And Jesus said, do this to fulfill all righteousness. Right? But we can go with our thought instead of what the Word says. Now, um, I, I was brought up in church. We, we went to church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. Um, some of you stayed home and watched Lassie at night. I did not get to watch Lassie. I watched Lassie two times in my entire childhood, and that's because I pretended to be sick so I could stay home. <laughs> now, we, were, we were in church all the time, all right? Now, now here's the interesting thing. I, I went to church there for 20 years. Not one time did I ever see or hear a person get saved or see an altar call, all right? Because this was what we, we, we believed. We believed that God had decided who would be saved before he made the world, all right? And if you were supposed to be saved you are going to be saved. But you say, I don't want to be saved. doesn't matter. You're going to be saved. And if you're supposed to go to hell, you're going to hell. 
You say, but I don't want to go. It doesn't matter. You're going to go. Right? So, so, so I'm, I'm hearing that. I'm picking that up. All right? And, and I'm like 10, 11, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. I remember laying on my bed and, and trying to give my life to God. Now, I didn't know how because I'd never seen anybody do it. I'd never heard it. But I tried, and, 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 you know, and I'm laying there, and it seemed like nothing happened. So this was my thought. Now, I don't know what I was expecting to happen, but I thought something would happen. So my thought was, I'm one of those that are supposed to go to hell. Ten years old. And I thought, I may as well go for something. So I proceeded to give God some reasons. For ten years. And then somebody opened the Bible. Showed me Romans 10, 13. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. I mean, that, that, that one verse for me, it took that tradition and just crushed it into powder. Later I found Romans 8, 29, which says, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now this is what that means. God's foreknowledge is God's ability to look ahead and see what, you say, see what you're going to do. How many of you realize what you do tomorrow is not going to be a surprise to God? When you confess your sins, not when he finds out about them. All right? So God, foreknowledge, he looks ahead and sees. And the Bible says, whom he foreknew, who, whom he looked ahead and saw, he predestined. God did not choose for you. He just saw what you did. And everybody who chose Jesus, he predestined. So somebody said, what, that, that's, what pre, that's all it is. It's election. Somebody said, what, what about how, election? What is that? Well, there is an election. All right? You get one vote. God gets one vote. Devil gets one vote. You vote with the devil, you're going the wrong way. You vote with God, you win the election. You're elect. You just vote with God. Just that simple. But that, that tradition kept me in darkness for a decade. following people. Again, Paul said, it's not me. It's not Apollos. It's God that gives the increase. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Right. So the gospel, what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection, it is the power of God to everyone who believes. What that means is this, that when you believe the gospel, the same power that was in the event is released to you today when you believe. That's powerful. That's powerful. Now, back, back to Exodus, they come out of Egypt. Again, 10 plagues, Red Sea, manna from heaven, water coming out of a rock. Moses is up on the mountain with God. And the Bible says that every place they went, there was a pillar of cloud that led the way. And at night, it was a pillar of fire. But they come to the edge of the promised land, and Moses dies. In Joshua chapter 1, excuse me, Moses died. God said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. How would you like me would like to follow Moses? I mean, there had been a whole lot of stuff happening under Moses, including that pillar of 
of, of cloud by day and fire by night. But now it's gone. And God said to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written therein, and then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Now, what does he do? He said, don't, don't look for the pillar anymore. Don't look for the cloud anymore. He said, I want you to go to the word. Go to the word of God. The prophet Habakkuk said this. He said, I'll stand my watch. I'll set myself on the rampart. And I will watch, NIV, I will look to see what he will say to me. Now, here's what most Christians want. We want goosebumps. We want somebody to come up and say, thus saith the Lord, you shall marry, you shall buy, you shall work here, you shall go to school there. That's what we want, right? But notice what he said. He said, I will look to see what he will say to me. Where, do you, where is he looking? Where do you look to find out what God is saying to you? You look to the Bible. The Bible is unique in this way. The Bible claims to be God speaking to you and to me. It is God's word. Now, notice it says you shall meditate therein day and night. Right? Because literally, the Bible is food for your spirit. Right? Now, the spirit, that's your heart. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's in Christ, you're a new creature, a new creation. The living Bible says you're a new person on the inside. And it is your spirit that gets saved. Right? Now, the problem is this, that you are not just a spirit. You also have a soul or a mind. Right? And your mind does not get saved. Your spirit gets saved. So you can have a heart full of Jesus and a mind full of junk. In fact, the truth is, when you get saved, everybody who gets saved, right? When you get saved, you have a heart full of Jesus and a head full of junk. Yes, sir. All right. Now, what we've got to do is get rid of the junk. Are you right? Right in here you are, but up here you're not. All right. So, so what the Bible is supposed to do is to fix your up here and change the way that you think. So God said to Joshua, but he's saying the same thing to you and me. He said, look, you need to get in that thing, that Bible, and you need to meditate in it day and night. Now, when it comes to meditation in Western culture, we, we don't really understand well Bible meditation. First of all, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever worried? You are expert meditators, but you're just meditating wrong. All right. See, because you, you are meditating on all the bad things that are going to happen, right? See, in Eastern religion, to meditate, you empty your mind. But in Christianity, to meditate, you fill your mind. And you fill it with God's Word. And you apply God's Word to that situation, right? In fact, literally, meditating is like coming at it from the north, the south, the east, and the west, from above and below. Right? And it's saying, how does that apply to my life, my situation? Probably the best understanding of meditation, and this may seem a little crude, but, but think about a cow. That cow goes out in a pasture and it eats that grass. And then it goes and lays down and it regurgitates. And it chews that grass again. And then it actually regurgitates again and chews that grass again. 
See, that's what meditation is. It's not you're just hearing that word once or just reading that word, but it's getting that word down on the inside. And notice, then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. You see, again, you can have the Spirit of God on the inside, the love of God in your heart, but you can be messed up in your head. And what God is saying, he's saying, what you need is the wisdom that I'm going to give you from my word to make your life prosperous and to have good success. Now, what we tend to do is we tend to look at some very unreliable authorities in making our decisions. Often we look to culture, which simply means, well, everybody's doing it. How many of you parents ever had your kids say that? Everybody's doing it. Yeah. All right. That's culture. You look around, well, everybody does that, so it must be all right. It's not all right because everybody does it. In fact, it's not right if you think it's right or I think it's right. It's right if God says it's right. That needs to be our standard. In fact, in Isaiah 8, 20, it says it this way. The prophet says, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. You think if they disagree with the Bible, they're wrong. Just that simple. You know, and today, opinion, everybody, there, there's polls on what do you think about this? What do you think about that? People come and say, what's your opinion about this? What's your opinion about that? Who needs an opinion? You got a Bible. Right? Look in the book. Find out what he is going to say to you. All right? My opinion doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. David said, Psalms 119, 128, he said, I consider your precepts concerning all things to be right. So God's right about marriage. He's right about forgiveness. He's right about kids. He's right about money. He's right about your job. He's right about everything. You say, I don't like that. Tough. <laughs> it's just the way it is. You know, it's like, well, you're, you're, it's like you're petting the, the fur on the cat the wrong way. Well, let the cat turn around. Because he's the Lord and he changes not. And he's not right most of the time. He's right all the time. All right? He is the judge. So we look to tradition, or excuse me, to culture. Everybody's doing it. To tradition. Well, we've always done it this way. Yeah, and they worshiped the serpent for 700 years. Was it right? No. No. All right? Then we look to reason. Well, it makes sense to me. Well, peanut brain, that doesn't matter. <laughs> do, do, do you have any idea how big the universe is? How many trillions of stars, hundreds of millions of galaxies? And God knows everyone by name. He put them out there. Listen, if you and I could figure God out, he wouldn't be very big, would he? You know, you and I, it might seem right to us, but the Bible says there's a way that looks right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. It can look right, but the fact is, does it line up with the Word of God? That's our standard. If it doesn't line up with the Word, Isaiah said there's no light, there's no truth in them. So, and then there's the emotions. And, And it is amazing how many people in our culture today, they are led by their emotions kind of like their mantra. If it feels good, do it. Do it. It feels right. Well, listen, it can feel right and be wrong. It feeling right doesn't make it right, right? All four of these, they're just flawed. What we need is a perfect standard. 
that'll never lead us in the wrong direction. So Solomon said it this way. He said, every word of God, it is flawless. Every word, it's flawless. Remember this. The kingdom of God will work for you on the same level that you're committed to the kingdom. It'll work for you on the same level you're committed to the kingdom. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to everyone who believes. See, every part you don't believe, you don't get. It works for you on the same level that you're committed to it. Right? And there's a test for all of those voices. And it's God's word. Does it line up with the word? God's word is food for your inner man. It says in in 2 Peter, it says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Look, you will never grow spiritually if you are not in your Bible. How many of you had breakfast? How many already had lunch? Planning to have dinner? Ice cream? Snack? Come on. We feed our bodies multiple times every day. And many of us believe that spiritually we can be healthy with one meal a week. If you just ate one physical meal a week, how many of you know you'd be anemic? You'd be in trouble. And the same thing is true spiritually. We need to feed our spirit. And your body eats Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts and Romans and Corinthians. So we need to feed our inner male. James 1, therefore lay aside all filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Now, again, your soul in one mind, it's your mind. That's your soul. But it says that the Bible is able to save your soul. Again, when you receive Jesus, your spirit's saved. But your soul, your mind is in a process of being saved. And it's saved with God's word. God's ideal way of changing us is to have us read the Bible and find out how we should live and then depend on the Holy Spirit who is indwelling us to enable us to live that way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we should read the Bible not for ourselves, but against ourselves. Got that? Not for ourselves, but against ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it says, These things happen to them as examples, and they're written for our admonition on whom the ends of the world have come. How many know that's us? We're the the ends of the world. We're we're close. Now, those things are written for our admonition. You can check me out. In the Greek, you, you can literally translate this, slap your face. These things are written to slap your face. Right? You see, you read your Bible, you ought to get slapped a few times, right? In fact, if you read your Bible in the morning, don't get slapped. Keep reading until you at least get one slap. (laughs) The the, the Bible is going to slap us. It's going to say, hey, straighten up. Hey, you need to go this way. Hey, don't go that way. That's wrong. This is right. Here's how you're going to be blessed. Here's how you're going to prosper. Here's how you're going to have joy. The Bible is going to slap you if you're going the wrong way. They're written as examples for us. For our admonition to slap us on whom the ends of the world have come. All right. Uh, Second, Second Timothy 3.16. Now, uh, Rick Renner is going to be here again in, in January. Rick is an outstanding Greek scholar. And uh, he is working on a translation of the New Testament. And, and I, I've got part of it back in, in uh, my library. 
And I took his 2 Timothy 3.16, and I want to read it to you. This is his expanded translation. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is mandatory, essential, an absolute requirement for those things we affirm and believe to be true. It brings reproof, correction, and censure into our lives. It can take anyone, including those who've been knocked flat on their back in life, and it can set them back up on their feet again, regardless how long they've been down and out. The Word of God will make them once again stand erect and upright. It will put them back on level ground, fully equip them to successfully live life by a higher standard that leads to upright, godly, clean living. You see, the Bible is not just a book about doctrine. The Bible is God speaking to you, right? It generates life. It brings faith. It produces change. It frightens the devil, causes miracles, heals hurts, builds character, transforms circumstances, imparts joy, overcomes adversity, defeats temptation, infuses hope, releases power, cleanses your mind, breathes things into being, guarantees your future. It cleanses, it corrects, it warns, it brings peace. And it should be a part of every believer's life every single day, every day. Now, I want to close with an admonition that was given to the kings of Israel. And it's just as true for us as it was for him. It says, also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the law in the book from the one before the priests and the Levites. Now, of course, this was the day of scholars when you couldn't go and buy a book. It had to be written out by hand. And he said, he has to have a copy. And it shall be with him. And he shall read from it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, and that he may prolong the days of his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. See, if you'll spend time every day in God's word, it will impart wisdom to you. It will impart faith to you. You will have something that is so lacking in our culture, the fear of the Lord. It says it will keep you from being proud, thinking you're better than other people. God's word will work on the inside of you every single day. But you and I need to put that word in our heart. The, the, the proverb says the way of the Lord is strength to the upright. In other words, every time you do it God's way, it's going to bring strength to that area of your life. When you do marriage God's way, every time you do it God's way, it'll strengthen your marriage. You do money God's way, every time you do it God's way, it's going to strengthen your finances. Right? No matter what area it is in your life, the way of the Lord will be strength to you, right? to the upright. All you need to do is live life God's way. See, it imparts faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is an anchor, Hebrews 6, 19, for your soul. We are living in turbulent times, and, and times are changing faster than they have ever changed. 
right? Culture is going in crazy directions. You need an anchor for your soul, right? God's Word, it's an anchor. Hebrews 6 says God did two immutable things. First of all, it's impossible for him to lie. And this is what he said. And secondly, he swore by himself. He says, so you can be confident that what God says in his word, he will do. That he is watching over his word to perform it. It's an anchor for your soul. Uh, we were just in Israel a few months ago, and right by the, the, the Sea of Galilee, there's a town called Tiberias. And up behind Tiberias is Mount Bernice. Up on top of Mount Bernice, there's an old Byzantine church. Some say it's the oldest church, Christian church, in the Holy Land. Right? Uh, we tried to get up there this last time, and there was a, the, the road was washed out. And man, our bus driver had to back down. Everybody was praying. I'm telling you, they were praying. This is, this is a mountain. But you get up there, and it's called the Anchor Church. And there's a huge old anchor, 1,500 years old, outside big, big monster anchor, okay? because that church was built on God's Word. And if you build your life on God's Word, you will have an anchor in uncertain times. You will be solid, right? Jesus said it's like you build your house on the rock.